Elijah Comas is a New York City and Pennsylvania-based actor, director, composer, student of theater and religious studies, and co-concierge. In his own words, grassroots theater, interdisciplinary, dynamic curation, citizen artist, praxis, buzzwords, blah, actor, director, composer, student at Wesleyan University, co-concierge at Wits End Man. This is not a manifesto. I've tossed around various different about page ideas, and they all feel very pretentious. So here's a few things I think I believe. Theater is entertainment. You shouldn't have to have been in the room to understand what's happening on stage. It's a pretty damn powerful tool for community mobilization. Aesthetics make our hearts beat. We sync up in the face of beauty. It's a good way to try to understand the world a little bit better. He can be found on Instagram, at Elijah X. Comas, that's E-L-I-J-A-H-X-C-O-M-A-S, or his website, ElijahComas.com, or the website for The Method Gun, which is TheMethodGunWES.com. From the Wits End Manor, have you ever wanted to run away from the world, pretend time could stand still, drink hot cocoa and cuddle, create moments? Welcome to Wits End Manor, a room slash theater slash restaurant slash harbor slash warm place slash pillow fort slash open invitation inhabited by Ellis Collier and Elijah Combs. Above all, it's a space for you to join, play, relax, cuddle, and create life with us. Open all waking hours, mileage may vary, and complete with state-of-the-art nook. Come, discover, indulge, and exist in our corner of comfort. Hey. Hey there. How are you? Good. You and I got to know one another. Uh, I'm trying to think how long ago it was when we first really met. If my memory serves me, I met you via your parents in some way Mm -hmm. before ever working with you or seeing you work. I think that's correct. The first time I remember working together, or at least tangentially was the I guess it would have been 2016 gas pipe one act right festival you did um what was that my fellow Americans is that what it's called yeah I had that uh, monologue uh, that Jove wrote and then I directed one of the ones right yeah right and that was when my mom wrote a one act yes Uh, yes my sister were in that and she directed the one she wrote right yes yeah Yeah. right you made a point after forwarding your info to me to make sure that you clarified that you are a theater and religious studies student. That was very important. Is that your general focus in life and in studies right now? Yeah, I guess. I mean, to be honest, studying religion sort of happened by accident once I came to college. I didn't grow up thinking of myself as particularly religious um, or spiritual in any way, Uh, but I took, I just happened to take a class at school on it was a religion course. The vocabulary about community and ritual, and in particular, the way that religious studies is interested, the discipline is interested in the way people engage with space for the purpose of religious ritual. Was I saw a lot of parallels between that and the way we as theater artists engage with space for the purpose of theatrical ritual. It just sort of made sense in my head to sort of pair the two. And, and now, honestly, that I've made, that I like made that decision a year and a half ago to study both theater and religion hand in hand, um, I've, I've realized how much the arts are my spirituality uh, for me. I really, really uh, agree. That's, mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting. I'm a spiritual person, uh, was not raised with religion in any way, shape or form. Even, even the word God was not a part of my upbringing. But what I call God entered my life when I was 19. And uh, it's been a continuing evolving relationship is what Mm -hmm. I would call it. But finding acting, what I have found is that my spirituality is completely directly in line with 
with performing. And I suppose that's because I'm tapping into my true self, which is where God resides for me. Um, does that resonate with you at all? I don't know. Um, for me, I don't know if it's, or at least I don't think about spirituality in terms of a higher being necessarily. I, I, I don't, not to put words in your mouth. I don't know if that's how you're thinking about it either. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's much more about the idea of community and, and sort of the, the energy that surrounds us when we're with other people and the way that that fills us and, and creates new performances, new energies. And that's what I'm interested in always pursuing. You asked in the email to share, to sort of think about my artistic statement. Um, and I don't know if it's clear from, from my about page that you read, but I sort of believe that my artistic statement is different with every project. And, and part of that is because of the idea that like the energy that is coming from the people you're surrounded with is gonna be different from project to project and from night to night. Just today, for the first time, I was thinking about what my artistic vision is. Because when you're on this side of things, which I have been now for almost a month, I ask the tough questions. I don't think about answering them. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, But my artistic vision, it would, it would be a long, possibly convoluted answer. So, um, If it isn't, I, I feel like you're, you're not thinking about it hard <laughs> enough, right? What is grassroots theater? Huh. Uh, so my dad, who you know, has worn many hats throughout his life, but most or sort of consistently has been a political and community organizer. Um, so I sort of grew up with that link. And we live in, I'm from central Pennsylvania, rural town on the Susquehanna River. I sort of grew up with that language of thinking about grassroots organizing and it's, it's the people that need the change or making the change happen. And sort of this like bottom up way of thinking about making change occur. I guess there's a, a way of thinking about things in general that comes along with that. So when I was coming up through high school, I became really interested in directing and I had the privilege that my high school, give a shout out, I guess, Lewisburg area high school, uh, um, let me direct a show for my senior project uh, in high school, um, which had happened a couple times in the past, but there was really no infrastructure for that to happen. So I, I basically, I both created the process of the production as a director does every time, but I also created the process for that kind of work to occur coming from students. Um, and that infrastructure has persisted. There's been a couple productions from what is known as Student Theater Collective since I graduated. Um, and they're doing, they're totally, totally their own thing, which I have nothing to do with. And it's so amazing. So thinking about theater in terms of creating opportunities each time you do it or creating events each time um, and doing it with the people that want those events to occur. My most recent example of that is this last January, I put up a production in, in my in my parents' garage and we converted the garage into a 33 seat, essentially black box, except it wasn't a black box. It was covered in like old paint cans and, and you know, the lawnmower was sitting in the back of the stage. And so this idea of like creating your own opportunities is really important to me. And that's sort of what grassroots theater mm. feels like. So perhaps you, you pulled that word from the political world? Yeah, no, definitely. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then dynamic curation. Dynamic curation is something I'm still unpacking that actually I stole from an actor that I've worked with a couple times, Paige Kajuba, who's uh, still currently a high schooler at Lewisburg High School. Um, and she was in my production of Stupid Bird in my garage. <laughs> it's still like, it's still absurd. Um, and wonderful. That's great. Yeah. Um, but she had this idea of dynamic curation that she was talking about, and I asked her about it. Uh, and she described it as 
anticipate like when you're hosting a social event anticipating the way specific people are going to interact with each other and the the like social dynamics that are going to be present and how can you curate that sure. um that's her use of it and as far as i know she came up with the term um i'm really interested in applying it as a director and a performance maker um I guess both to the actors and the performers, but also to the audience and thinking about the dynamics that are gonna be happening between the audience and the actors. Um, mm. And how can I curate that? It's honestly just another way for me to think about directing. Citizen artist. Citizen artist is honestly something I identify with less, but my, one of my professors, Katie Pearl, talks about um, citizen artisanry. And I think also American Conservatory and Theater in Chicago, uh, not Chicago. Um, San Francisco describes their MFA program as preparing citizen artists. Um, and it's just the idea that as artists in the world, it's our civil duty to also be citizens and to use our craft as, as a way to socially and politically engage with issues and people and communities. So also perhaps pulled from the political world, the idea of being uh, an active participant in democracy, or in this case, an active participant in the theater. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess for me, it's less about actively participating in like American democracy or the hegemony of American democracy and more in participating in the, the social institutions that make up what our democracy purports to represent. Okay. It's not a statement about the live event of theater itself. It's a statement about the creation of, of the work. So okay. you shouldn't have had to have been in the rehearsal room. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, and then also, you know, you're talking about the, this relationship of theater. There's a group that I was with for a few months called the Seeing Place Theater, which is based here in New York. They're in the Upper West Side, but they, they're phenomenal. And they're the ones that made me look at theater less as a chance for me to perform for an audience and a more like this is a relationship that's happening. And that's why the story yeah. can take on different meanings every night if you have different people in the audience. So it, and it really truly is, uh, I see it the way that they, they helped me to see it, which is that it is a relationship. But talking about River Stage and your, your philosophies on theater and art got me to thinking about naturally your parents. I think it's clear to me, but you can, you can tell me if I'm wrong or right about this, that they really strongly influenced who you are as a person. And at some point on my Facebook thread i started to see your name was no longer zimmerman and now i see that your sister is referencing herself as comas or you are referencing her as comas what's going on there uh, my dad is comas and my mom is zimmerman so when when we were like and i'm still legally zimmerman comas but i'm much i identify much more with my dad's family history than my mom's uh so it was sort of a decision on my part to to grow into that because Comas is, is a Spanish name and Zimmerman is my mom's Jewish last name. Right. Okay. So your dad is where your Spanish lineage comes mm -hmm. from and why you go back there so frequently. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. That was uh, something I've been wondering for a while. I never got around yeah. to, to asking you about. I actually, uh, my friend Manny and I made a short film uh, last winter that starred Thea, uh, my sister. Um, and I, I made her not use Comas and come up with a stage name for her last name because I didn't want the credits to just be Comas and, and Rothman, which is my friend Manny's last name over and over again. Because it was me, he and I directed it and our two younger siblings starred in it. Would you describe your parents 
both as artists. I would undoubtedly describe my mom as an artist. I mean, she, we've mentioned her several times as theater. Um, she, she's also a published author. Um, so yeah, and, and my dad, I, I don't know if my dad would consider himself an artist, but he's certainly artistic. Uh, my parents actually met um, in college. My mom directed a production of The Lie of the Mind by Sam Shepard that my dad, she cast my dad in. That's how they met. Wow. Um, that, yeah. makes, that makes sense. When I think about Shepard and your parents, that's great. It, yes. Well, with the, with the caveat that their relationship has nothing to do with the relationship. It is nothing like the relationship <laughs> in The Lie of the Mind, um, thankfully. Um, uh, yeah. But it's, I've certainly come from an artistic family, you know, and, and, and a family that's concerned with the community, um, which I, both, I get from both my parents as well. Yeah, um, certainly. Yeah, your parents, you know, while your parents and I share different uh, politics, view of politics, um, but as I told you many times before, I, I have nothing but respect for what you're, you're, I mean, as far as creating another human being, other human beings, and bringing them into the world and showing them that they're a part of the world and that they can influence the world. Uh, how do you get better? Your parents have been fantastic in that regard. Well, tell them you say that, yeah. So what was it like being raised by those two people? I know you wouldn't know any other way to look at mm -hmm. things, but you know, you've made friends. You know that not everybody has the same upbringing and philosophies as you. So how would you describe what it was like being raised by these, these active engaged, artistic, educated people? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I guess the, the shortest answer is I've always been pushed to be curious. Um, and so have my brother and sister. And I, I guess not only be curious, but be curious together. Um, you know, we grew up in the downtown of a small town, so we could sort of wander around wherever we wanted to. And there, there, there were other, you know, all of our friends live within a five minutes walk of us. So there's all, there's all this sort of like coming up with games together outside or like we have these great home videos of like the pajama day parade. And it's me and my brother and sister and our two friends, Emma and Rudy, wandering around town with like a wagon and our pajamas and signs we made. Uh, and, you know, we came up, we came up with all these elaborate, um, like make-believe games and I actually look back and I'm, I'm very aware of how much I was trying to direct my younger <laughs> brother and sister um, but you know like I guess my parents really foster the environment for that to happen that kind of play um, and as we get older the, that persists to a degree but it also becomes much more about the conversations that we have around the table and like what we're talking about. And my, my dad as a local, you know, grassroots political organizer and, and local politician is, you know, the conversation at the table is constantly leaping between local politics and national politics and art and, and our individual educations. Um, so it's all about curiosity really, I guess. I could not possibly love that answer more. There's a lot of places I could take that. It's, it seems to me that, you know, I'm not a person that believes in uh, dualism. Mm -hmm. I believe that dualism is, uh, is an immature phase of a person's growth, the way looking at things from a dualistic perspective, I believe. Yeah. Earlier on in my philosophical development, 
it occurred to me that people were based one of two ways. They were either more curious about life or more afraid of life. And I don't disagree with my earlier self sentiments in that regard, but I know that that's an unfinished thought because it still says that there's two things only. But the curious thing is absolutely what, how I've defined myself in life. And it's the people that I have chosen to congregate with that I've been befriend are also extremely curious about life. The people I seem to have the, the most issues with are people that are more afraid of life than I am. Would you say that you are also afraid of life or are you just mainly curious? Curious. I feel like any fear I have, I'm curious. I become curious about that fear. But I also, I think it's your, your statement like that, 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 that was an unfinished thought is interesting because I feel like, I, f I feel like basically everything is an unfinished thought. Like any thought is an unfinished thought. Sure. And that's part, that's like what makes the art, art so exciting. And you like, you, you close a show and you're like, oh, that was, that was really satisfying. I still have some questions, but I guess I'll ask them in the next one. You, yeah. you know, right? And yes. like, that's why it's, we do, that's the way creation has to keep happening because we keep having unfinished thoughts. Absolutely. And that's all, that's all. This fleeing star, you know, you shared a lot of your links to, to your art and I mm -hmm. took a look at most of it. I didn't have time to check out all of uh, the method gun. Um, quite long, but, yes. but uh, I applaud you for that. The, well, the I, just to clarify, the method gun is actually, I think the link is like two hours and 40 minutes or something, yeah. right? But the, the second half of that is all a talk back. The actual play is only like 85 minutes. Oh, good to know. Although yes. that I'm still going to want to watch the whole thing when I watch the, the talk back is probably also interesting. Yeah. But if you're if you're interested in in us We're trying to make theater over Zoom, of, it's the first uh, 90 gathering minutes you'll watch. the energy of everything we've all learned and inviting into this live stream the the spirit of what we've all been taught. And you know what it was like to be a student at any point in your life in need of guidance and discipline and encouragement from anyone. You can put your phones away. You won't need them again. Thank you. So Stella Verdon is the woman to whom this show is dedicated. Miss Verdon was an acting teacher of the 20th century American theater who inspired intense loyalty in her students. And then one day walked out on them and emigrated to South America, never to be heard from again. But her students carried on her traditions long after she disappeared, completing the company's nine-year-long rehearsal process in order to present one final public performance. The show The Stella Burden Company was working on was Tennessee Williams's A Streetcar Named Desire, but not as you probably know it. The company performed the show without the main characters of Stanley, Stella, Mitch, or Blanche. That's the performance we were working on before we all went into isolation. We were going to present Streetcar in its entirety, performing every line, every action, every stage direction that does not involve one of the main characters. We'd gotten halfway through our rehearsals by spring break, and then instead of going back to campus, we all ended up here in our individual bedrooms and living rooms, much like all of you. So we see it this way. Our research is no longer them, it's us. What does it mean to be a theater artist or an audience when you can no longer gather together in process or performance? Continuing to rehearse and make this show is us trying to find an answer. 
Tonight, by inviting you into our experiment, we will attempt to complete the loop that was formerly known as theater. We have an unopened letter written by Stella herself, written to one of her students, and kept in this locked box. Along the way, we'll be reimagining the company's rehearsals, recreating interviews, and performing our own experience with the Stella Burden actor training technique called the approach. In fact, we've completed one just now. At the beginning of a new rehearsal process, Stella Burden made it a ritual to ask her company to imagine their most important teacher, including her if she was it for them, and then write down that name. And she collected the names in this bowl. Then, after the first performance, she would burn the names as a way of honoring and destroying the lessons they had learned. Okay, so now we're going to change into our costumes for our Stella Burden Company characters and start with another exercise used by the Stella Burden Company actors. Uh, unlike when I, Friday. you know, the first 30 minutes of, or sorry, the first 30 days of quarantine, I was jonesing for anything and everything to watch and absorb and then i just my friends and i realized we needed to pick our show back up now i don't have the downtime again almost it's yeah which is nice mm -hmm. uh, it's have, nice to not have downtime i'm i'm now having the downtime because i spent you know this was this, the method gun was the the show that my my university was putting up so it was a class that we had to keep doing despite the fact that the pandemic happened um and it became more than a class for all of us it was like we talked about at the beginning, for me at least, it was not to speak for the whole company, but it was became this spiritual exercise for myself. And now I have the downtime because it's over, and I'm like, what do I do with myself? Yeah, sorry, I totally derailed your question. That's okay. It's, it's about <laughs> you. That's fine. So I just want to read what's at the very beginning of this fling star. Uh, I really, really liked it. Type 1A supernovae can only occur in binary star systems in which two companion stars orbit each other. When one of the stars reaches the end of its main sequence life, it loses its hydrogen envelope and the leftover stellar core converts into a white dwarf. As the stars continue to orbit each other, the white dwarf's companion star will begin to dump some of its outer envelope gas onto the white dwarf. The white dwarf, unable to perform nuclear fission, cannot sustain this additional mass past the Chandrasekhar limit of 1.44 solar masses. At this point, the white dwarf will be entirely obliterated by its own thermonuclear explosion. Without the gravitational forces of the white dwarf, the companion star is immediately flung off into space. This fleeing star is referred to as a runaway star, and it will soar blindly through space until some other force acts upon it. Man, I love that. I just love that as a, as a, a work of poetry. Hmm. I would like to know where you pulled that, if it was from a textbook or what whatnot. I want to also say that I thought that the film had some really good edits. There were instances where confusion was shown simply by the way that uh, a particular scene, almost a frame in the scene was put, where it bounced all around. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of visual aesthetic storytelling, which to me was very, uh, a la, it was Lynchian, some of it. Um, you know, you could say it was, there was uh, some lost highway-ish, you know, the, there's the, the highway driving. That's very- Yeah, amazing. God, that shot is so awesome. And then there's also just other visual films. I wanted to find out if you were aware of any of these and what your thoughts were. Into the Void, Tree of Life, Baraka, Upstream Color, the Quatsi Trilogy. Uh, are you familiar with any of those? So I'm not, I don't consider myself a filmmaker. 
um, really. I, my friend Manny Rothman, who I made this with, who filmed it and edited it. So all of, all of that like, is all him. And he's, he's, he's so phenomenal. And all the people that are watching this, I encourage you to check him out. Also, his website is mannyrothman.com. Mannyrothman.com? Yeah, M-A-N-N-Y-R-O-T-H-M-A-N.com. And I've heard of all of those films from him, have not seen any of them myself. Okay. Um, the biggest aesthetic influences f- coming from me for this were um, A Ghost Story and It's Such a Beautiful Day, which is a, like a multimedia animated movie. With this fling start, mm-hmm. you touch on school shootings. So I have a, a multifaceted question for you here. So Great. what is this fling star about? And what has your view of the world been as you've grown up? Because you're currently how old? I turned 20 in a month. So I'm 19, 20. All right. 19, so, 20. so you are Gen Z or whatever. You're, you're, yeah. This, this millennium is all you've known. Mm-hmm. Your parents and I are, I guess, probably the, about the same age. We've grown up in a different world. We grew up in a different world than you are. The fear was not really a part of my life growing up. There were these nonsensical drills for, you know, the Cold War, where I did remember getting under a desk when I was a, in, I don't know, first or second grade or something like that, because mm-hmm. a nuclear bomb might drop, and that would totally save us from annihilation, this desk that everybody carves their names into and stuff. Um, so, but you've grown up in a world where there are, gun, there are shootings happening in church. There are shootings happening in schools. So you're coming into this world as an American, and now you're at an age where, fortunately, you've been raised by parents who have brought you up incredibly well. So perhaps you haven't had to do a, who am I? Who is Elijah thing as much as some people have? Some people have to find themselves because they were raised in something that was not supportive of their curiosity or their creativity or their spirit. So this fleeing star has to do with school shootings. What's it been like for you to grow up in this world where you have that as a reality. Maybe I'm going to get killed today in school. Or is that part of your reality? Uh, to answer the first part of your question, what is it about? This fleeing star is, was me processing the complexity of emotions I was facing at the end of my first semester in college, which was a transition. Uh, it's still the hardest transition that I've dealt with. It brought up a lot of mental health issues that I didn't necessarily have words for at the time. Um, and I, and the idea of type 1A supernova, which I learned about in my astronomy class, um, really resonated with me. I felt like, a, this sounds so cheesy, but I felt like one of the runaway stars that's described. Um, and so I started writing this, and then as I was writing it, it, it brought up a lot of resonances with the sort of fear of, of being, of everything around you being obliterated. Um, and you're, and suddenly you're also, you're flung off into space like a runaway star as well. And, and that felt like school shootings to me. And so I did absolutely grow up. I mean, for, for me, I think that, 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 that fear has seen several different faces already throughout my life. Um, or maybe, or maybe it even hasn't, but the, I feel like the defining, the defining moment of my generation, or at least the pocket of the generation that I was born in, I was born in 2000, are, Trump's election, unless you are, unless you're a supporter of Trump. Well, I, it probably still stands out, but for very different reasons. Um, 
school shootings. I very vividly remember Sandy Hook being the first one that I was aware of. Obviously, Columbine was much before that and a few others, but um, um, and in particular, like everyone, um, uh, yeah. Um, and, and obviously now coronavirus, right? Like this is, this is, this is the, this is the event that is undeniably changing the rest of life as we know it on a day-to-day -day basis, ultimately. Um, so, so there is this like sense of fear, generational fear that I think is an undercurrent, not to my work necessarily, but to my life and to everyone that I associate with. And that informs the way we interact with each other. There's an urgency in everything. Urgency is a big part of it. Mm. Thank you so much. It was nice to see your face. Yeah, you as well. Thank you for giving me your time today. I appreciate this. Absolutely. It's great to talk. try to understand the world a little bit better. You can find Aloja. Uh, sorry, I don't know how that just happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the worst I've heard, surprisingly. <laughs> I kind of like it, to be honest. Aloja. Aloja. Well, it sounds like, like a building in Spain, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs>